Here we go on a jam-packed Monday night. It's time for Iron Sports. True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. And a lot to get to this week, Ira. A lot has happened across the uh, landscape of the NBA and the NHL. So much to discuss. But first and foremost, where have you been? <laughs> I was uh, in the in FTX Arena both yes last night and on Wednesday night. Uh, saw uh, two bad losses to the Heat. I mean, I never thought after Wednesday it didn't seem like we we're going to come back for Sunday. And then we got the hope on Friday night and went down there yesterday. And I just am not recovered from the game. I, a game seven is such finality i've been to a lot of the game sevens but i it was it was a tough game it was a tough game to be at and uh a bad loss for the heat i i, I keep hearing for everyone say well the better team won but you get to the mountaintop you get to one game before the nba finals and nobody looks it's like win the title it's like remember when toronto beat golden state the year that durant got hurt clay got hurt they didn't say well they were the better team we didn't really deserve it, it. You, got, you got you got to win you got to figure out a way and so many teams we see you might not be the better team but if you're this this it's not like it's like you're so close and to lose this when you have that chance and then and look yeah boston was a better team but miami had their chances they had game seven at home and yeah. they had they were down in the first quarter by more points than any team has ever been down in a game seven at home and it's really frustrating and i think as a heat fan it's 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 saddened because you wanted and also you wanted to be in the nba finals and have the heat return to the finals when they're when their finals in the bubble that wasn't really the finals i mean you're playing in a bubble so you want to go back to those days of lebron and wade and have all those things well it, it's it's why we play the games too i hate hearing well they're the better team it, oh. According to who? This is why they play each other, and they've beaten them three times already. If, if that's the way people want to look at things, just put Golden State versus Brooklyn in the, in the finals, and we'll, we'll play that. But that's just not how it works, and the Heat had every opportunity to take a Game 7 at home. And, you know, it slipped through their fingers, but I hate the narrative of, oh, the Celtics are a better team. Well, they went to Game 7, so they might be a little bit better, but they're not— you know, outlandishly better. They went to Game Seven and they had a 13-point lead that the the, the Heat got down to two, and and with Butler having a shot to win the game. So if they were so good. Again, this is a team, Boston, that just couldn't simply can't close. Seem to have problems closing games out, and it has their flaws. Look, they're a good team. They're in the finals. Golden State has flaws too. Every team has flaws, and that's what they have. But the Heat had their chance. I mean, they're at Game Seven at home. This was not. They were swept in a series. This was the fourth game. They were at Game Seven. They had this game, and and it's and it is frustrating, and to think that the finality that it's over, and that they especially when they went and won Game Six in Boston. Absolutely. So we'll talk more about that coming up in a few, and then. I don't know if we needed really any introduction for our guest tonight, Jay Billis, coming up around 740. Yeah, I went to law school with Jay. I've been trying to get him on the show for a while. And, of course, anybody who follows ESPN, he's the lead announcer. It seems like almost like two decades mm -hmm. he's been on and talking about that. And he has, he's very opinionated uh, uh, comments about the change of the game and how the game should be played and the rules. And I talked about NIL because it's so confusing. I mean, we have uh, it just the whole landscape of college sports has changed. But Jay has been, before anybody else, been on top of this by saying, look, the NCAA is uh, it's hypocritical. It's just hypocritical. The whole thing is hypocritical. Mm -hmm. They're making tons of money. That Everybody makes money. The players don't make money. So he's been really critical about how they've been. He's challenged the NCAA a lot. No, and yeah, I mean, as far as outspoken goes, Jay Bill is at the top of people that you're going to hear in sports. Great interview with him coming up at 740. All right, Ira, we mentioned NBA. we got to start with that. Let's talk about Boston and the Heat. How did we get here? Because this was a series... I really didn't know each game going in what was going to happen. <laughs> and, you know, you usually have a little bit of a narrative, but this one was a little bit all over the place game to game. Let's go to game four. Well, game four, we taped the show Monday. I'm in the car, and we were just a running a little late. I, by the time I get back to my apartment, it's 29-11. And I'm listening to the game, and I'm like, what am I How listening to? Yeah. 
<laughs> it was like 18-1, 20, I mean, giving the scores, 21-4, 26-4. I mean, it was it was the craziest thing. Boston at one point was up 47-23. to 23. Um, At one point, the Heat, four of the five starters didn't even have a basket, and Butler had one basket. They finally put Oladipo in and scored 16 points. At, at halftime, it was 57-23, and uh, it was just, it was one of the, it was, it was horrendous. And uh, the second half, the Celtics came out great. They were up 32 points. The Heat starters were shooting at point six for 35, and uh, it was the Heat starters for the game at 18 points. It was, they said, since 1970-71, the lowest amount by any starters in the history of, of the NBA, playoffs, anything. I'm going to say this. You have to go back to 70-71. When John Naismith started the game, you're not going to get, <laughs> I think they said Struess and uh, the over two games, Struess and Lowry were one for 28. Yeah. I guarantee you, not two guards have never shot worse than one for 28. We don't have to go back to 70-71. I, I, I don't need to look at, I know the statistics go to 70-71, but I can guarantee you when John Naismith took out the peach basket. Yeah, they were using peach baskets they, they and that didn't basket, happen. They weren't one for 28 on the peach basket. So that was, that was ever. But it was it was it was terrible. It was, it was I mean Bam Bam Adebayo nine points, Lowry three points, Struess was zero for seven. Uh, they finally put Duncan Robinson in, in the game who had fourteen points, but Tatum had thirty one points, uh, and, and it was just a total blowout. And you're like, what is going on? And then you're like, but that's still it made it two two. They're coming back to Miami for a game five Wednesday night. I'm excited going down there. I love going to the Heat games. Like, okay, that's fine. It's Lose a game, it's 2-2. The Heat are three-game series. So. We play four games in Miami, so we can drop these. So let's go back to Miami for Game 5. You were there, and I don't know if this did much to instill confidence uh, across the country. Well, the, the Heat were up 42-37 at halftime. Uh, Tatum had shot one for eight. Um, this was a point where Strauss, Struess, and Lowry were still, of course, this was part of their one for 28. And this whole series has been, in game one, the Heat had a 44-14 to run. Boston had a 60-21 run game in game two. Miami had a 46-20 run game three. And, of course, and we talked about just game four with 26-4 run. And then you have in the third uh, quarter, it was, it was, the margin was, it was just a disaster. I mean, Boston went on uh, a 24-2 to run. Between it just the Heat couldn't shoot, just couldn't shoot at all, um, and the Celtics were up twenty three and, and cruising, and it was just it was one of those things where I couldn't believe what I was watching. Was the Heat consistently just missed shot after shot after shot? Uh, Butler was was as he said he was he called himself trash. That, that's his words on mine. <laughs> Forty minutes, four for 18, 13 points. Um, Duncan Robinson shot four for twelve, but Struess played twenty minutes, was zero for nine. Lowry twenty five minutes, was zero for six. And uh, it was just one of those things where Robert Williams came in the game and had 10 rebounds and Horford had 16.7 boards. Uh, it just Tatum had the 22 points, Brown had 25. It was, it was like, wow. I mean, the game, it was one of the, again, you go to these Heat games and everyone's gone by the fourth quarter. So there, it was, it, they were gone in the third quarter. I mean, by the, when the lead was going on, they just want to be there for that. And we know the like, rep of Miami fans. <laughs> You're getting out and, of here. Oh, I'm ready to criticize. The, I, look, I'm a, I like Miami. I love going to the games there. I'm going to start, in the next, when we start talking about game seven, let me criticize the fans. But um, at that, when I walked out, did I think we were going to go back for game seven? I was like, anything could happen. But you didn't think, that's why we, we go to game six. The Heat were nine point underdogs in a game six in Boston. You know, and they've been underdogs at home the entire time, which goes for that national narrative that the Celtics are a way better team. But, yeah, I think that pretty much everyone was crushed after Game 5. Any Heat fan was like, we just have no shot here. I like that, you know, after the game, Jimmy Butler and Kyle Lowry, they owned it. They said we were not good, and it starts with us, and it trickles down. And that, that kind of was a little bit... Not I want, deflating is not the word for it, but you're kind of looking at the team like they're shot. You well, know? I was in Wednesday in the team store after the game, and it's Spolster goes, and I love what he said, which is, "This is fun. This is what we play for." They're still we're going there. I mean, like, are the team? You know, they were asking questions. Is the team down? They go, "We're down because we lost." But there's still someone has to win four games first. And he goes, "What about injuries?" He goes, "We don't make excuses. 
we don't make excuses. Yeah. Like, there's no excuses. He goes, they goes, they're hurt, we're hurt. There's no excuse. It's not just excuse. And he goes, well, who's hurt? And he goes, I'm, we're not excuses. They're hurt, we're hurt. We're going to play them in Boston, and we expect to win that game. And that was, the, I think that was a great coaching. That was a great job. And you saw the attitude of, of Butler and Lowry. Lowry, who's, and Struz. I mean, they're 0 for, 1 for 28, and they're still <laughs> saying we're confident. And that's what I, if they would have taken the, oh, woe is us, and that type of thing. Like Jason Kidd almost after the, the Mavericks went down 3-0, talking about, like, next year. The point is, I just like the fact that Spolster was like, look, we're still in the series. No, it, it's, well, if there's one thing that, the Miami Heat do is professionalism, and that's exactly what we saw um, after two, you know, really backbreaking, deflating losses. So going to Boston, this is hostile territory. He'd have not looked good in the prior two games. I don't think anyone was expecting what we saw, and this was a good money line bet if someone went ahead Me? and decided to do that. that. I know you did. So I knew I was going to go to game seven, and I saw the line was was three to one odds, and I'm like, well, a ticket's going to be like seven, $800, so I put $200 down. I probably should have more, but I put $200 on the heat saying, okay, well, if they lose, then I lose $200 and forget it, but if they win, then that's my ticket yeah. the next night. And then as the game is going on, I see when the heat started losing, some of the tickets came up online, and I saw a ticket for like I don't know, seven, dollars $700. That was a good seat. I just bought it. So it was like, okay, it was a free ticket almost. Well, actually, 200 with my bad. But yeah. well, we're not going to get too picky here. But the point is, is that is that I was able to to, to uh, uh, hedge everything in order to work out. But for me, it's like, okay, well, if they lose, then I'm not going to, there won't be a game seven. So that's whatever. But it worked out. That worked out perfect. For Solid logic. I, yes. I, can't, I can't flaw that. This is Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. Mike Balsamo here as well. Jay Billis joins us at about 740. So let's talk about game six. Ira, nobody Across the, across the country, outside of Miami, thought the Heat had a chance here. I, I don't think people in Miami even had thought they had a chance, but the Heat, I, it's how they started. I mean, Jimmy Butler, who had scored a total of uh, 27 points in three games, I mean, just came out and had one of the most classic performances, LeBron-like. I mean, that's what you want to say, Giannis, LeBron. Well, people say it was the best performance they remember. Well, Giannis did score 50 points in game six at the NBA Finals last year. I yeah. would think that as good as Jimmy Butler played, Giannis played better. But And I, and I think Butler played great, but people do not to minimize what Giannis did in game Our six. Our memories are short. Of the, <laughs> that's a short memory. But um, I mean, Butler started out, it was the shooting, he got uh, he got a steal. I mean, he it's something, his had the same doctor work on his knee, and whatever do they're working on, he should be just now doing some infomercials. Uh, tell, <laughs> take the AT&T commercials out about the 5G or whatever and put this doctor, because what he was able to turn to Jimmy Butler's knee was amazing. I mean, Butler really couldn't move in the other games, and now he's like on, scoring great. He rubbed 19-9. And I think this is a criticism I have of uh, Boston. It's like they did not come ready for that game. No, like they, they, they overlooked the heat. They overlooked that game, and it was it was it was it was at that point. It was really it was it was forty eight forty six heat at halftime. Tatum had uh, uh, eighteen points. Brown had eighteen points, and the rest of the team was three for eighteen. They were shooting uh, three for thirteen from three. They had ten turnovers. I mean, it was the sloppiness. It was just they just didn't they weren't into it all. And then finally, like Stru started making some shots. And, uh, and there was a point then, and then it, when you finally, when they finally woke up, and you're like, when I think when Marcus Smart made a four point play, I got started getting really nervous. But then Struce. Struce is like on these keys when the game looks like it's a loss. These three-point shots come out of nowhere. I mean, he could be over thirty and then hit this three, which was so key. Um, and then at the end of end of three, it was eighty-two seventy-five. And then Derek White for uh, the Boston, who they signed this year, was just been amazing for them off the bench from San Antonio. He had a, made a three, made a three-point play, and uh, but Butler again a three. And then with ninety, they were up. He were up ninety-four ninety-one with five forty-two left. And Horford hits a three. Now, I think that that Horford made that three, and then I don't think he ever hit a three the rest of the time no. because he was just missing <laughs> everything. And then um, then they took the lead, but then Lowry came back, who hadn't been shooting. I mean, again, these players who had been playing, like poor like Struis and Lowry, start hitting these big-time threes, ties it, then Lowry makes, makes it 99-97. And then 
They're up 99-97, and Jalen Brown goes to the line, and they for the game, he were 24-25 from the line. Boston was 20 for 39. And Jalen Brown, who I consider should have been on the four, at least third team All-NBA, misses two free throws. How? With, with two minutes left, do you miss two free throws when you're so good? And then Butler drove, got it in one. They were up 102-99. And then Tucker stole the ball, was fouled, made it 104-99. They made it, it was on a 10-2 run. And then right to close out the game, Butler made that turnaround like, Every hands in the face, turnaround shot. I mean, he was doing everything. Just an amazing performance. And then Brown charged. And then Butler finished with 47 points, nine boards, eight assists, four steals, only one turnover. I mean, Bam had a bio, only six points and nine boards. But Struess was five for 12, Lowry five for 14. And uh, Tatum and Brown, Tatum scored 30, Brown scored 20, but really not much in the second half. But just a really big, I mean, each team had 17 turnovers. But what a what a win. It was really Butler just putting the team on the back, scoring every single time. And that it was very LeBron-like, very Wade-like, very what whatever. And you saw when I was at Game 7 when they announced the name. I mean, they always cheer for Butler. He's always last. But just the appreciation for that performance. And he deserved every bit of applause because he really uh, took that team on its, and city on its back when it needed it most. So we're going to Game 7. It's all tied up. It's in Miami. I think things are looking pretty good for the Heat. This you've been to every Heat game so far this playoffs. Ten it, games. Yeah, and you said before we went on air, this might have been the worst experience you've had at a Heat game or any type of sporting event. I, I, you know what? It just, I was excited about this game, and then it was sunny here in West Palm Beach. I get in my car to drive down, and I have this great ticket that I really didn't pay anything for. I think it's free almost, and I'm excited. I'm getting my car to drive down, and there ra- it started raining. It was sunny all day, and it started raining. It rained the entire way down. I got to 5D, and they were like. There was, it took two hours to go down there. I should have had a canoe or whatever to go mm-hmm. down. And then the, the 95 was flooded, so you had to go around. And I still get to the game. I left so early and get to the game. And then they didn't have, I, I, the way they did parking now, it's, the, it's better to valet park because it's almost the same as the normal parking. But if you're going northbound, when they valet, they bring your car out. You can ride north. So I always like valet parking because it's just easier to do it. It's not any, it's not any different in terms of pricing. As I said about the Fort Lauderdale Airport, it's the same to valet yeah. as the normal park. So the valet wasn't open. And then they pushed all the cars back on Key, on Biscayne Boulevard. And their cars, everyone's waiting to go to the valet or the garage. And then the Boston team bus, I got there so early, is trying to get through. And so the cops are, like, trying to move the cars out because before it was a total mess to begin with. And then I get there, you know, valet park, and finally they come. And I go and wait inside. So everybody's waiting outside. But it, I'll give you this hint is that if it's raining, you should go into the garage because they have a gate for anybody. You don't have to have a special VIP pass. Just go in the garage and wait. If it's raining, you don't have to stay outside mm-hmm. in the rain. So I went in the garage, went to my seat, and you know, my camera, again, doesn't work. Like, I'm like, oh, not work, but there's like a spot on it. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to get great pictures. This is awful. And then what's the other thing that's terrible happened? Oh, I sit in the seat, and I'm like, I'm, I, like I, every game I go to, I meet people. Everyone's awesome. Everyone's great. I'm telling them about I Run Sports. We're talking. Well, this guy comes next to me, and he goes, and he goes, I am the longest-term season ticket holder. He's not wearing any white, no heat stuff, whatever. And he goes, but I call myself a Game 7 fan. He goes, I've had season ticket holders since they started. I have VIP this and this, but I only go to Game 7s. I'm like, that's not really a great fan. It's a little bit of a waste of money. Really, whatever. And then behind me, I'm taking the videos of the game, and somebody, and during the game, somebody, and you know I've taken tons of videos on Ira Sports, on these great videos. I had over 60,000 views of my Game 5 Jalen Brown had a dunk. 
I had 60,000 views of that dunk and everything. So I'm doing it. And I'm not the only person who uses their cell phone. I know this might be strange. Everybody has If you watch a golf tournament, everyone's using their phone. So I'm doing it. He, someone grabbed, the behind me grabs my arm and says, my cell phone was in his way somehow. I have no idea how. And when he grabbed my arm, and then I'm like, oh, I didn't want to make a big deal about it. I'm like, I turn him saying, you know, keep your hands to yourself and that type of thing. But I didn't want to make it escalate because that's game seven. I don't want to get thrown out. I don't want this to be whatever. And he's with at least two daughters. And it was crazy. But then the whole game, every time I have my camera, he's like, oh, you're, it's a whole movie. What are you doing? <laughs> it's like a rat. Weird. But, uh, ridiculous. So I'm, so it, it's just not in a good mood starting from everything. It just, it seemed like, and then when I got there early, the one other thing I noticed in the game is none of the Heat players, after shooting this poorly, were shooting. I got there so, two hours before the game and no one shooting, where all the Celtics were out there practicing. I'm thinking, maybe she come out, get some practice. I mean, Tucker was shooting a you little bit. Deadman and Hero came out. But really, I didn't see the other players. And I'm thinking, you know, I mean, Struis took some shots, but I would expect more. I mean, I don't know. It was just, it didn't seem like they were practicing enough before a game. It, that, to me, is bizarre, especially with how much is riding on that. Now, yeah, like you said, uh, you know, Lowry and Struis won for 29, you know, two games ago. So that's bizarre to me. Yeah, and then the other thing is, it's like, so I got there and I said, I'm going to get a pin. They kept saying, you're going to get these pins because, you know, when you're at a game seven, this is historic. I usually have these beautiful tickets from my game seven. I was at LeBron with Golden State. I was at LeBron and, Ball, and, and Cleveland played Boston. I went to two game sevens back to back, the Western Conference, Golden State, Houston. And then uh, I was in uh, Boston for Cleveland for that game. And I have these great tickets. Well, I can't get tickets. It's on my cell phone. It's a stupid mm -hmm. whatever ticket. And I wanted and a pin. They don't have any pins. They still don't. It was too hard. They even have shirts on the on this they have nothing they gave this little piece of paper that said heat there was nothing there was no towels no shirts nothing they enough maybe they like, didn't think they were going to be yeah, there like, and they didn't have anything like put something together like get something to go it's like they weren't ready like i'm so mad the fans weren't ready and and the team and clearly the team wasn't ready because that start of the game was just horrendous they just were they got like it was it was 32 17 after one the lead got up to 17 boston's lead after one quarter was the largest ever by a road team after 12 minutes of a game seven Ever by four crazy points. I mean, it was crazy, and they were just it was like Butler was trying to do everything. But besides that, it's like, what was the rest of the Heat doing at that game? It was just a terrible performance. And the only thing that was amazing was at the end of the first half, they went to a, on eleven two run. They did threes by Struess and Butler, and then they had some free throws by Lowry, and then they cut the lead to six. I, I don't know how that even happened. And then, but then this is my other pet peeve about Miami Heat fans is could could we? I mean, this is Game Seven. Okay, we're not talking Sacramento in December, Minnesota. Like, if you want to go in and sit and have a lunch or dinner, that's fine. There's so many beautiful uh, areas you can have to eat. Underneath the stands, there's the, the dinners. You can sit there, take third quarter off, go watch some games, meet your friends. But this is game seven. Like, watch the game. Like, this is key. You cut the lead to six. When they started, like, if I was the Heat, DJ Khalid was seeing the first row. I said, DJ Khalid, do us a favor. Have Do a set. Like, do a whole set. Like, <laughs> Draw go everyone back. Keep people there. Do something. Pay people. Do keep Bring the food. How about Papa John's take all the pizzas and say, look, everyone sit in your seats. We're going to give you free pizza. Besides, <laughs> go to the bathroom. But no, everyone's treating this like it's a normal game. Like, this could be November against uh, Charlotte. Like, it was nothing. Th this game starts the second half. I'm like, this is it? This is finality. This is history. And they're all, everyone's eating. For six, seven, eight minutes, they, they were all eating. Everyone, I just... It's beyond me. Like, can you not wait to eat? Like, just for this, for Game 7. And it just really, that frustrated me. But it's not just Heat fans, it's everybody. I'm not going to criticize Heat fans all over because I see it everywhere, but it does drive me nuts that the Heat doesn't realize because then when they started the second half, that's when the, suddenly they cut the lead to six. I'm like, I felt the Heat were in this game. This was their game. They, the Celtics had this huge lead. They blew it, and then they come out. What kind of energy? There was, there was. A, we could drive down right now. There was as much energy. We probably would be <laughs> than the arena than there is there was when the second half started. No, and that's, I mean, 
not for nothing, that is the reputation that Miami Heat fans have and people in Miami in general get there late, leave early, try to charge back in when the, when the team turns around and locks the gates behind you. So what about this isn't half-time, unprecedented. The halftime eating. I, I mean, I think Miami people are healthy. They went, but you can you can you skip, like, can you eat a little later? I mean, yeah. the game is over an hour. Like, can you not wait to eat? Like, I just... It's just so frustrating that that was, and you could see that the public address announcers, everything they did, that uh, everybody on your feet, you know, they they were doing, they played all the songs that they play, like they were trying to get in the first half, the, the fans more excited. But I'm like, gosh, I mean, this is Game Seven, like you've got to be yelling and screaming and be excited and be in, be present, be in the stadium, be in the seat, be in your seat. I mean, I know how many fans. I guess I think think how many fans are at home that don't have the opportunity to go to the games. They're probably in front of their TV sets, screaming and yelling. It's like, boy, I feel bad for them that they weren't there. Like. Get these other people. If you're not going to sit in your seat, then they should come and sit. I would have closed the restaurants. Like, close them all. Like, out there on the stands. Well, it's like the New York Giants, I'm sure you've heard, they have that stereotype, too, because it's all season tickets and corporations that are there, and it's not the real fans. <laughs> and, you know, people show up late, leave early. They're, they're not as into the game. If, if it was John on his couch in Schenectady, he'd be a little bit more excited. This is Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Don't forget to follow Ira across social media at Ira on Sports. Jay Billis joins us here in just a few. So let's talk about uh, the rest of this, because... Like you said, they, they pull it close, and now I'm starting to feel okay about it, but it still was, you know, far from over. Well, this is then the craziest thing ever happened in a game, but you expect crazy things to happen. Struce cuts it to a three to make it 56-54, and then the lead, then suddenly the Heat blow the lead because there's no fans there. It goes up to, to, <laughs> to eight points, and Robert Williams is shooting, and they make an announcement. They go, this is now, I guess, it would have been three minutes after this happened that, that they go back and they say, the Struce shot was a, I thought they said was a two, not a three. I did not know until the game was over that they took two points. That it was they took it totally off. That he stepped out of bounds, which is craziness. Like that how never in the world? happens. You're supposed to look game. at the two or the three, not say, "Oh, he stepped out of bounds." I don't care if that's the rule, but the point is they used to have this. This I don't think it is the rule. I think they were only allowed to look at the two or three because they looked at in in the times past if the ball was out of bounds. Remember the review in the last two minutes if the ball was out of bounds or who touched it last? Well, if somebody fouled someone when they touched it last, they couldn't call the foul. They can't go back on a game. It's like going back to to like the Red Sox game. 30 years ago. I mean, you can't just keep, what are you supposed to do going game? Oh, yeah, we look back, and that should have been a two, and that person, that foul, oh, and Struso's, oh, two foul shots in here. Like, what is going back on that? I can understand the two or three, and that was, to me, so long. But to go back and say Struce stepped out of bounds, and then they took three off, and they gave, and Williams was shooting foul shots. So it was a five-point play. So suddenly the lead now is 13 instead of eight, which is ridiculous. I thought it was bad. I, I think Spolstra was upset about it, but I think they could have been more, how it was handled was weird. Could you imagine, you know, in the sixth inning of a game, them saying, hey, in the fourth inning, that was actually a strike, not a ball. We got to take these runs off. It's unprecedented. It's bizarre. Um, Coach Spolster actually said after the game, this will be a case study for the NBA. And obviously, a little bit of, of a mocking, um, you know, a mocking gesture there. But yeah, just weird, Ira. And that didn't help. It didn't help the Heat's case here. No, I mean, uh, Miami went on a 7 0 run. Although Depot had a three finally after that was over. And then it was 78 67. And then Lowry scored a three right at the timeout and made it 78 70. And I was like, getting all excited but then I'll tell you what in the third or fourth quarter you see Butler he played every minute of every game he was only the there was one other player for Oklahoma City that played 48 minutes every second of the game which I couldn't believe all year but maybe he got a little tired because he missed some layups Drew's two layups that went like the ball went around and around and around and came out it's like wow I mean so close and then Lowry drove and had an and one made 80-73 but then Butler made another layup but at the point is 
at the end of the third, remember when Oladipo went down and they thought he just like took like a 40 foot shot when there was like 30 seconds to go, like it was the stupidest shot. And then they ended up not scoring that hole, but that was, they, they, they messed it up. I thought they had momentum, but they were still 82 75 going into the fourth when I thought, wow, could this have been like a three or four point game, not a seven point game going into the fourth quarter. And then Bam had, but going in the fourth quarter, Bam had a two, Father had a two, cut it 82 79 with 1046 left. And uh, then Tatum was fouled, so they went up five. And Tatum then then they cut it so close, and they weren't able to take advantage of that. I mean, it was like in terms of what what, what it was go. And then uh, nine minutes to go, Lowry fell down. So at eight, and, oh, at eighty two seventy nine, that was the high, it was like a high water mark. And then the other one was Butler missed a three. I felt that was the situation again. Remember at the end of the game when he missed a three, I thought maybe go for a two mm -hmm. on there. They you already scored. Bam at two, Butler two. You're on a roll. Why he took that three? But then with nine minutes to go, Larry fell down and he called a timeout. And what's so weird about that was that left them with one timeout the rest of the game. So I'm thinking, boy, all Boston has to do is go on one run and the Heat can't call any timeouts. But uh, Vincent missed the shot and Horford had a fast break. They went up nine. And then 824 left. Tatum had a charge on Lowry, which they kept calling these fouls on Tatum and Brown. And if I'm the Golden State Warriors, that's all I try to do. If that's the way the league wants to charge it. And I hate these calls. I hate, like if Tatum and Brown want to drive to the basket and Giannis the same thing and they like, they hit somebody, they call it an offensive foul, and what are they supposed to do with their off arm? Like, the Butler had that one play where he pushed off, that was an offensive foul. Smart had one where he pushed off, that's an offensive foul. But you're allowed to go up to the basket, and if your ball, the arm with the ball, its elbow hits somebody in the face, it's their fault for getting in front of the face with the ball if you're just going up to the basket. If it's a basketball motion, that should count. As long as you're not purposely elbowing somebody, then I, I, I know a lot of weird little ticky-tack calls like that across all these series, though, it seemed like. Yeah, and then Smart made it. Smart made a shot. They were up 90 to 79. They went. The Heat went four minutes and 30 seconds without scoring. They missed nine shots. So they missed nine shots. They go 430. But you know, it wasn't like the lead then was like the lead should have been. It was. It should have been. It was 98 35 with 331 left. So it should have really been like 25 or 30. Like that game yeah, should have been, been. But they were missing shots. Like the Celtics weren't like making that many shots on their own. Um, but Tate, I'll give Tate. Tatum had a three, which was 552 left with huge. And then he had this turnaround on the inbounds where they had like two seconds to go. And he threw this like rainbow shot in. So I give Tatum credit. He had those two baskets. But then 98, 85, 331 left. He'd go on 11 to nothing run. I mean, Lowry had a two. Smart, Marcus Smart decided he was going to be Michael Jordan because then he misses a shot. Then Struce Duncan, after an Ole Depot miss, missed. That was awesome. And then Smart misses a three. They get the offensive round. He misses another three. And then Oladipo misses a shot. But then Lowry strips Grant Williams. And then they got another fast break. Oladipo got a fast break. So that's what the Heat were, what I was hoping that he was doing. And Ben Gundy said when I watched it on TV, get more fast breaks, run the ball. Like you can't do anything in set offense. And it was like they waited to the last second to do that. Smart missed another three. And then Lowry scored another three made it on an 8-0 run. And then Brown, that was the foul. Brown had a charge, like a, which I thought was a terrible call. So they get in a, they get that benefit. And that's when Strews, amazing three again. Like that, when he cut it to two, like, wow, he cuts it. It's tremendous. So then they come back. So there's 30, 44 seconds to go. And uh, uh, Tatum has the ball. And I have this on my video. And Tatum's dribbling, dribbling. He has Strews on him. And like, you're up two. This is to go to the finals. And all Tatum does is drive to the corner and he whips the ball over his head to Smart. Smart drives. And there's four Heat players in the lane. And he just throws, like, yeah. it's like a, a shot you hit at the pool at Memorial Day weekend. And then Father gets the ball, drives, dribbles, and I agree not to call a timeout because it looked like Boston was total disorganized. They were frazzled, yeah. They, and I like, but I think Father should have drove. Horford was the only one in front of him. He tries the three, misses the three, but I really felt like if he drove, Horford would have fouled him and then they would have they would have tied. Remember, down two, so he shot a three, but then they missed it, and then uh, then Smart hits the two foul shots and the game's over. No, I, I totally agree. And watching it live, it was 
a little bit deflating seeing, you know, he's he's running pretty basically at full speed and just pulls up for a three. There was still over 10 seconds left. Even if you hit the three, now they have the last possession. I understand you want to take the lead, but they could have killed some time or he could have just gone to the basket. I think he should have gone. I think he would. I think he's just laid up. I think he's not a great three. I mean, it's not Steph Curry going down with a yeah. three. He's not a strong three point shooter. He was in the motion. I can't criticize, but I mean, I think he'll probably say why. If he looked at it again, he would see that there was. It's only, the heat of the moment. That he it, it was that just Horford was right there. And just like one of those shots where you think about it again. But I want to just bash Tatum a little bit as much as I loved how well he played in the fourth. But the last five shots. I mean, that's what, when I look at Boston, and I think how they did not play well in game six, how they did not play in game seven at the end, I'm thinking, boy, you guys got to step it up for Golden State because that's not, Tatum did not want the ball at the end of the game. As much as I like Tatum, and he's wearing the Kobe Bryant armband, and he's Tatum this and Tatum that, and he's first team All-NBA. He's got to drive that. Someone, he's Struess on him. They didn't double him at the end. He didn't want that shot. He didn't want to go by Struess. He throws it to Smart, and Smart was throwing up shots. I just didn't like it. And, oh, one other point about the game. I sat behind the Boston bench, and Emi Adoko, who has done a phenomenal job with Boston all year, you know, they had a great record, everything. But during the timeouts, he would wait forever to go. Like, the team goes there, they would be talking, they'd be whatever, and water, which most teams do. I told you, Spolstra, this series was, like, jumping down and just doing the, doing the talking immediately. But, you know, he was normally wait. But he would wait till like, they blew the first time. Like, there, they, there was no time for him to talk. So he'd run there. And one time, Marcus Smart's sitting there. He actually had to mark, knock Marcus off the, his own chair so he could sit down. He talks for a second, and they, the team has to go back. And he's running around trying to give more instructions. Like, stop talking to the coaches, Emi. Get back there and start talking to your team. And the one time when the when I felt like the Heat had a run, Al Horford, I give him credit, got everybody around and said, and he was like, everyone. And they were all paying attention to him. And Horford was like, more than smart, took them and said, we're not blowing. I could hear him, not blowing. We're not doing this. We're not, whatever. He was really emphatic. So I give Horford and Smart both credit for taking control of that huddle. Regardless, unfortunately, our Heat are not moving on. I think it's going to be an interesting series coming up uh, here in the next one we'll talk about. Um, just how we got to that. Iron Sports, Truly Channel. Ira, we only have about seven minutes till we have to get to uh, Jay Billis here. So we're going to have to fly through some of this stuff. You want to get into some Dallas and Golden State because nobody really gave Dallas uh, much of a shot here, and it ended up being pretty pretty true. Well, I mean, again, it was like I don't even know why Dallas was even in the series. I can't believe they lost to Phoenix. Um, and, and I really think Golden State, it, it, again, it, game four, uh, Golden State went up. Uh, Dallas won 119-109. Uh, they were. It was one of those things where they were on a complete run. Where Dallas went up 99-70, and the only thing that was interesting about the game was when they when Golden State put all the reserves in, all the rookies in. They met on a 15-2 run and cut it there with three minutes to go. And then Kerr made a decision to bring back uh, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson. And it's like maybe let these guys. I mean, the game was so it was, it was they're down by 29 and they cut the lead. Like mm-hmm. let them try to run it, but it was really that wasn't much. And then then they didn't, they weren't able to. But they go back. Everybody knew in Game Five they were going to end up winning the game. I mean, it was just it was one of those things where I. I would think people were surprised that Luca played so poorly. He was 10 for 28, uh, 3 for 13 from threes. And uh, it was like one of those games where, where Clay Thompson then just came out. I mean, that's what you got to be impressed with. He had 32 points, draining threes. He was 8 for 16 from threes. I mean, Curry had a bad game. But when you think about Clay from a couple years ago when he blew out his knee and then when he tore his Achilles, to think that he'd come back and have a 32-point game in this in this closeout game five uh, just sets everything. And And what I like about Golden State was they, they got the rookies involved, and now they're going to have Gary Payton Jr. or Gary Payton II coming back, Otto Porter's coming back. They're using a lot. They're, they have so much more depth than Boston. 
I, I, at first, you know, about two, three weeks ago, I said, boy, they have so many flaws. They have so many problems. They take bad shots. They turn the ball over. But the more I look at Boston and their problems, I'm like, boy, if I'm Golden State, I'm going to run Boston out of there. I'm going to just run fast breaks. I'm going to tire them out. They're not going to go deep. And uh, I really think they have more players. I, everyone thinks that Boston's more talented than Golden State. Golden State has Draymond That's Green, crazy Steph Curry, Clay Thompson. And then, yeah, they go Bull, nine deep. Wiggins. I mean, Wiggins are put on Tayton, and they go so deep. I, I honestly think this is going to be in five. This like, could I, be a five-game series. I think they're going to win. They'll win one and maybe. I mean, but I don't think. Everyone thinks Boston, Boston thinks they're going to go to Golden State, and it starts at Golden State that they're going to win one of those games. I don't know. I don't think about that. Like I think Golden State, and remember, Golden State used to have problems in like the first couple rounds, and with Durant even, they went to Game Seven against Houston with Durant. Yeah. But uh, but I, they are not going to. They are not. They usually when they get to the finals, except that one time when they blew it to Cleveland. I think they're going to blow. I think they're going to blow. I was not impressed with how Boston played, and they really have to step it up at a different level to beat Golden State. Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel, on Mike Balsamo. Five minutes. Legendary uh, sportscaster Jay Billis will join us. Let's switch gears to the. NHL, Ira, Florida Panthers win the President's Trophy, uh, you know, best team in the regular season, not the best team in the playoffs. They did not look good against Tampa. Outscored 14-3. to three. I mean, that's all you have to know is they put the highest scoring team in the league scores three goals. I mean, yeah. that's it's like, it's all, it, it, I would say it's like Phoenix because Phoenix couldn't score, but it's even probably worse than that. It is. It is worse than that. But this went to show everybody how good Tampa Bay is. They're the two-time reigning Stanley Cup champions. And it's going to be really tough for either of these teams to beat them. We're going to find out uh, here in just a little bit which team is going to face them. But let's go back in the uh, Rangers and Hurricane series because we've seen a tale of – it's been Jekyll and Hyde from both of these teams throughout the series. Well, it's four, five, and six. I mean, they play in New York. The game's a route for the Rangers. When they play in Carolina, it's a game's a route for yeah. Carolina. And it's like each team you're like looking at – this is this is a reverse of almost like the uh, the Heat and the Celtics series. Um, I, I, like you should be very nervous. I mean, I'm on petrified. one hand, uh, going to Carolina <laughs> because it looks like – it's like I said, are the rinks – Different are they, like what is so different about North Carolina and New York that they can't play each other? I mean, they're not just these games aren't close; they're getting blown out in each other's. Uh, and the goalies can't. You know, it's 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 crazy what's happening. It's the only time um, ever in NHL history that we're this far in and a team's only won their home games. Carolina has not won uh, one on the road tonight. It's going to be a battle. I momentum looks like the Rangers are the better team. They can't win in Carolina. I have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> but I, I, you know, we just talked about Golden State and Boston. Same thing. Either team is going to get beaten five games by Tampa, the way they're playing. Best goalie in the league, better than Shesterkin for the Rangers. They play solid defense. They score. Tampa Bay is going back to the Stanley Cup, as far as I'm concerned. Let's talk about the West here, Ira, because you got into this deep because it's on later at night. And these teams, I I had mentioned it to you, Western Conference and Eastern Conference is different hockey. They're playing wide open. It's literally the Wild West out there. And we got uh, some exciting games. Well, I mean that it, the the goal the the one game they had like how many five four five four five goals in the game four when Edmonton beat Calgary Calgary five three goes up three one and then in game five uh, that second period was crazy Calgary was up two zero and then by the end of end of the period it was four four and then McDavid and then I fall asleep the one time I fall asleep McDavid <laughs> scores in overtime yeah. and wins the game but I mean. Uh, anybody, please, I'm going to be watching that. Connor McDavid is so much fun. I, I know I'm sounding like Tiger Woods is a really good golfer and Michael Jordan's a really good basketball player. And I know this sounds stupid for hockey fans, but he is such a joy to watch. He is so good with the puck and so he's just dominating and he plays with such passion and flair. I, I think he should take his helmet off and just like run around like they used to do in hockey. He's, so, he's great to watch. I'm really excited for the Edmonton, Colorado. I think that's going to be good. And 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 now that you know the, the basketball only plays like so they're going to play the seven games over like a month. Over a month. <laughs> I have plenty of time every night to watch hockey. So. I want you to watch out for Kale McCarr. He's a defenseman on Colorado, and he's the Connor McDavid of defense. 
He so he's moves. like Andrew Wiggins. He'll be like Andrew Wiggins. <laughs> well, no, 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 because he moves like a gazelle. Okay. But he plays defense. He was rookie of the year two years ago. He got Ron Hextall fired in Philadelphia because he didn't draft him. That's how <laughs> That's how you know how good he is. So when you see some guy who looks untouchable on Colorado on defense, that's him. What's going on in racing? Well, this yesterday was the biggest day, baby, in racing of the year. They had, first of all, the Monaco Grand Prix, which is the most famous race. And it usually is just a procession because if you win, the streets are so narrow. It's the most famous Grand Prix. And the cars used to be smaller, but now they're larger. So it's almost impossible to pass. And Charles Leclerc was born in Monaco. So this is his home race. He wants to win it. He's leading the Grand Prix. He's a Ferrari. And he was hoping this. And it started to rain. So it was an issue about whether they should rain tires or slick tires. And the way they put the tires and the way they pitted and the way they had him keep him out, it ended up, he came out. He's like like in fourth behind his teammate and Verstappen and Sergio uh, uh, Perez from uh, from Red Bull. And he ended up finishing in fourth. And it was like one of those things that is like he was crying, like he was crushed. You want to talk about a template? He was so upset because he had been practicing qualifying. He was by far the fastest car. But because of the strategies that, that Red Bull used in terms of they kept what they did is that they let uh, Ferrari pit first and then they stayed on their tires later. And because they stayed on their tires later, they were able to then make some difference. So when Ferrari came out, they were behind it. So so um, uh, Sergio Perez from Mexico won the race, and Verstappen, uh, Carlos Sainz Safari was th- second, Verstappen third, and Leclerc was fourth. And uh, it was uh, it was it, w- it was exciting. All the stars, all the celebrities. It's Monaco. It's beautiful to watch. And then after that, then you have Indy 500, and again another one of the things where Scott Dixon, like it was heart, it was heartbreak for these drivers. Scott Dixon has led more laps in Indy 500 than any other driver ever. He's had one first in four seconds. He was dominating the entire race. And then how about this? He loses the 500 because he pits and he got caught for speeding uh, speeding yeah. on pit lane. So then they had to set a red flag and he'd go back. And they started with this red flag where there was an accident. Jimmy Johnson, who was the NASCAR driver, the star NASCAR driver who was racing, crashed with like two laps to go. So they had like this three-lap race to, to finish the race. And Marcus Erickson uh, uh, was able to, to hang on. He, had, he was leading. And you're like, oh, he's going to blow it. But he actually ended up winning over Pablo Onward. And then Tony Kanaan finished third. So a big win for Erickson. And uh, it was they had 300,000 fans there. It was great. You know, people are wondering about open wheel racing. You know, the attendance, they haven't really been in last three years at Indy, have all the fans. It's, it's been the, it's the number one sports event in the world. So they all came back for that. And then at night, the Coca-Cola 600, Denny Hamlin was the biggest NASCAR race besides Daytona. And Denny Hamlin won over Kyle Busch. Uh, it was a crazy race. There was 12 accidents. Cars were getting knocked out. And Hamlin ended up winning the Coca-Cola 600. So let's uh, go to tennis, and I think our girl Sweetex still rolling. <laughs> well, Sweetex won now 32 matches in a row, and the Americans have done great. She plays Jessica Pokula now in the uh, quarterfinals. And then in the other quarterfinals, uh, Layla Fernandez has played uh, great. I mean, she's the one we saw in the U.S. Open again, lose the finals against Emma. Uh, she's 19 years old, Emma Radonsko. And uh, Layla beat uh, Amanda Asanova from America, Belinda Bensick, who's a very good player we saw in Miami Open. And uh, so now Layla plays in the quarters. And then in the other quarter, tomorrow, I think it's on tomorrow or the next day, is Coco Golf and Sloane Stevens. So we have... Two teenagers, Layla and Coco. It's great to see. And it's great for Coco. I mean, this American, there are five Americans were women were in the final eight. To see Coco now suddenly get to the course, like you really want to see Coco make this run. And Sweet Attack is the overwhelming favorite. She's had some trouble the last couple of matches. But uh, it's great to see the Americans do so well in the women. And then the men, all we have to say is tomorrow at 3 o'clock, if you hate tennis or whatever, watch the match. Djokovic-Nadal. It's insane that they put it there. They're in the quarterfinals. But uh, that's who. That's the one quarter is uh, is, is Djokovic and Nadal is going to be playing. And uh, all 
all the all the in the other quarterfinals would be uh, Sasha Zara from uh, uh, and uh, from and then Akaraz, who's been the number one player really playing this year. So that's in the other quarters, and then in the bottom quarters, it's Casper uh, Ruud, uh, Tsitsipas lost. So it's really wide open. Even though Medvedev is the number two seed, he's not very good on clay. Whoever comes out of the top between Joker, Nadal, Sasha Zara, or Carlos Alcaraz is going to probably win this tournament. But tomorrow they've met 58 times. This is the 59th time. Djokovic has won 20 majors. Nadal won 21. They last year they played at French Open. It's considered one of the greatest tennis matches of all time. So they're playing tomorrow at three o'clock. Must see TV. We got to talk about the golf tournament yesterday because what an ending. It was just a wild Sunday. Do you want to uh, talk about this a little bit? Because Scotty Scheffler went in here with the lead. We're thinking that he's just going to cruise to this. And he plays pretty poorly, especially for a Sunday to win a tournament. Ends up being two over. Sam Burns has a great day. And he finishes two and a half hours before Scotty Scheffler. They tie, go out, and it was a, they played 18 again. And Sam Burns, terrible approach shot. He's off the green while Scotty Scheffler's on. He putts in for over 40 feet. On the grass, one of the greatest close at all. Scotty Scheffler kind of just dropped his head, Ira. And I know you were, you were listening to it, not uh, watching it. But look on Scotty Scheffler's face. Like, if I'm going to get beat like that, what, what am I going to do? From a player that had it played two and a half hours. Yeah. Just one hole. It's like come out and play one hole. And Scheffler had been battling. But Scheffler you know, shot a 72. And the other thing was Harold Varner was like, in the beginning, like the day started, he was in the lead in the middle of the day. And he ended up shooting a 45 in the back nine. Yeah. He had a triple, a triple, and a triple, and a double all in a row. I mean, that's unbelievable. Uh, but what a win for Burns. And, and again, it was, uh, it, was, it was like one of those tournaments that you're just keeping your eye on. And Scheffler, though, in the mix. And, and, and yeah, they had a good field. JT, JT uh, after coming off the PGA win, Mm. Uh, didn't miss the cut. <laughs> so, but they had more cow in the field. Jordan Spieth, Spieth, was, Spieth yeah. was in the field. Daniel Berger played. So this week they played Memorial, which is always a big tournament. It's Jack Nicklaus's tournament in Ohio. And then they take a, a week Canadian Open. And then we'll see what the Live Golf. And then they play the U.S. Open in, in Massachusetts in two weeks. And then also on Wednesday is that match between uh, Mahomes and Josh Allen versus uh, Rodgers and Brady. Interested to see that. Let's get to Jay Billis here. It's Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports 95.9, 106.9. And I'm honored to have legendary broadcaster Jay Billis on the line. Jay, thanks a lot for coming on Ira Sports today. Well, Ira, my friend, it's great to be with you. Legendary, you gotta, you got to get a better vocabulary. You, you've known me too long to, to know that's not true. Well, Jay, we went to law school together, and I remember, I think, the, probably the biggest challenge you've had, I know you've done so much in terms of broadcasting basketball, but at one point we had a skit or whatever they would call it in, in law school, and you actually had to play me which is probably the biggest challenge of your life to actually play me in a skit. Well, my, my uh, thespian talent uh, shone through. I thought I captured the essence of Ira Kaufman as well as any actor could have. What was, it was like this game show to tell the truth, and people had to say who was, who was Ira Kaufman. People thought you did a better job than me as being my, myself. So that was <laughs> i give you a compliment on that one. But uh, we're honored to have you. you know, the past uh, year we've had Fran Dunphy, who uh, played with Coach Dunphy, who coached with uh, Coach K, and, then, and, and also uh, they played with him uh, throughout this Army tour where they traveled around the world. And also, you know, Connor wrote the book on Coach K. But you actually were like the key rec- one of the key recruits of the key class that went to, when people didn't know who Coach K was, you said, I'm going to go all the way from California to North Carolina to play for this guy. Yeah, it's interesting, Ira. When I was being recruited out of uh, Los Angeles in the uh, early 80s, uh, when Coach K first called me, I had never heard of him. And uh, he, he hadn't had any great success. He was just a, a year or two into his time at Duke. 
but I had a I had a really difficult relationship with my high school coach. So for me, choosing where to play was less about what school I went to and totally about what coach I played for. And uh, and Coach K, as I said, was the least well known, least successful of the guys that recruited me and the guys I came down to, but he was the one I, I just connected with the most and liked the best. And I guess, I guess I showed some good judgment there because he turned out to be pretty good at his job, and it turned out to be one of the most, uh, if not the most, non-family, the, the most meaningful non-family relationship I've ever had. And then you stayed connected to the program when I knew you in law school. You were coaching with the team, and you saw him from a perspective as a player, but then as a coach and working with him. And over the years, it, it's, it's difficult. You watch these coaches. It's really hard to stay on top a long time. I mean, they have peaks and valleys. For someone like him to stay on top and to adapt, it's just amazing. Yeah, I think, Ira, the, the, the attribute that sticks out above the others that are amazing to me is that Coach K in his 42 years at Duke never lost his enthusiasm for the day-to-day grind of the job. And like most people, whether they're coaches or lawyers or doctors or whatever, uh, I think people as they, they age, you tend to get tired of the day-to-day stuff. And that, that's what makes the difference is are, are you, you know, do you treat it with the same enthusiasm and the same passion, all those words that we cavalierly throw around and I think, you know, Coach K did that for all those years. And I think at age 75, you know, he was seeing that, you know, maybe it was going to become a little bit more difficult. And it was just time. But until until the very end, uh, I, I think he did the job in large measure the same way uh, that he did early on. He wasn't as active in practice. Like, he used to jump into drills when uh, when I was playing. You know, at, at age 70, he's not going to do that. He's smart enough to know that. But but the day-to-day stuff, uh, r- really, there was very little difference in how he did the job from age 35 to age 75. I think people were surprised at the Duke-Carolina game where they lost at home, the final one where the, the whole the brotherhood game, as they say, uh, when everybody came back, and then he came out, and he was saying, "Well, that's an embarrassment. I'm sorry for that." And they're like, "Oh, well, that might have been the right, wrong thing to say." But that was him. I mean, he's a fiery guy, and that was like he was upset that his team lost at home. I wasn't. I don't know. I, I still haven't wrapped my head around that one, Ira. Like, I don't think that is who he is. Um, and I think if he had that one back, he wouldn't have said that. Um, I, I do think that the enormity of of the last game, his last game in Cameron all the pregame pageantry that the school put on in his honor, I think it was a little much even for him, honestly. And so I, I don't think usually like there's never been a time uh, in, in the 40 years I've known him where I felt like um, he misspoke. And that was probably the only time, honestly, that, uh, um, you know, I, I know after every loss, he doesn't, he doesn't like accepting losses, but he's always been really good at it and always been incredibly gracious I don't think I don't think he meant to to come off the way he did, and meant to throw it on the players the way he did. I, I'm not. I'm, it's funny. I've not talked to him about it. Maybe I should, but but my guess is if if you had him uh, uh, under oath, he would say I'd like to have that one back. <laughs> well, everybody's uh, allowed to have a mulligan every now and then, but. Uh... I, I brought you on the show also to talk. I know you've been a critic of the NCAA, and you use the term hypocrisy a lot, and you've been using it. You've been consistent with your term of hypocrisy for a lot of things they do. And and I guess if I looked at a few, you know, came 20 years ago when they didn't have cell phones or whatever and said someone like Steve Alford is going to get suspended for two games because he posed in a calendar for a sorority for a charity, which he didn't get paid for, or someone is going to get suspended because they gave tad, got tattoos for some jerseys they gave. And then we turn to now where players are literally saying, well, I don't, if you're not going to pay me, I have 
a million dollars, I'm going to go to another school. I mean, there's been a mark of change in the last couple of years. But you know, you said you've been saying for a long time the NCA is not controlling this. It's, it's been hypocritical from day one about this, and this is what they've been left with. Yeah, Ira, amateurism has never made any person a, a better player, a, a better athlete, a better student, a better person, a better husband or wife. Um, none of it. Amateurism has been a sham from the beginning. And it's a vestige of, of old England where the, the moneyed elites just simply did not want to compete against the common man. And it was exclusionary. <laughs> and it's the same thing now. And so now that the Supreme Court has ruled and basically amateurism is dead, you know, the NCAA is still trying to control what athletes can earn or accept. And, you know, they've, they've moved the goalpost, to use a sports metaphor, to, um, you know, now it's employment. They don't want the players to be employees of the university. Well, that's not going to work either. Absent congressional intervention, uh, schools are going to be signing players to contracts. And what, what the NCAA has done is they've sort of ignored publicly and with their rhetoric, ignored the fact that they're running a multi-billion dollar entertainment industry off of college campuses. And it was ludicrous to believe that the players weren't going to ask at some point for their fair share. And, uh, and you know, they say, we're getting sued left and right. Well, quit violating federal antitrust law and you won't get sued anymore. And uh, there's one one quick way. There's one quick way to end all these lawsuits is take all the restrictions off of players and you won't have to worry about it anymore. And they continually lost. I mean, I've, I've, they had probably, the, you know, from the fact that when they lost that restricted earnings where they had people probably on this minutia, but there was assistant coaches that could earn. They limited how much they could make. It was pretty stupid to have it in the first place that you make the assistant coaches. And then they lost that, had to pay the assistant coaches that back all that money. And then they continually. I mean, it's it's, it's hard to find a case where this, the NC actually won in court. Well, yeah, but on some of the stuff you're talking about, but, but, but on the amateurism front, the NCAA had significant deference from the courts, and it was primarily over a 1984 ruling called the Board of Regents case, which I know you're familiar with. And, and that, was the, that was the case that really shifted the plates in college sports. That case was similar to the, the Alston case, which is about players, an antitrust case about players um, you know, getting more but in 1984, the schools sued the NCAA. The NCAA used to tell these schools how often they could be on television. They were controlling everything because they thought gate receipts were, were you know, the be-all and end-all. And now the schools sued, and they got to cut their own media rights deals, and that's when revenue exploded through the roof. But there was some language in that case that, that, that I always believed was dicta, which, you know, wasn't binding. But, but the courts over the years took that ruling by, by saying amateurism was a core principle of the NCAA. And they got a lot of difference on the, on the amateurism front in limiting players. But that went away really in the O'Bannon case and uh, in the Alston case in the lower court. And then the Supreme Court just eviscerated it. Um, so it, it's kind of open season on the NCAA for, you know, they, they're not going to be able to limit players anymore the way they have. But they still think that they can. And the, the funny thing is now, you know, they're, they're begging Congress to come in and give them an antitrust exemption so they can they can have, uh, you know, all they can have all these state laws preempted and uh, and they can continue to do what they've been doing with congressional approval. And I just don't think it's going to happen in the short run. And as Congress sees that the business is going to keep rolling along, you might have some coaches complaining. But they're going to keep rolling along, and the money is going to keep flowing in. I think Congress is going to be reluctant to step in. So we have name, image, and likeness now, but you're actually saying you might see actual, as you said, the contracts with the schools to the players instead of going through this whole, what they call really a sham now about name, image, and likeness on a lot of these deals. But the point is that actually players would then sign a, a contract with the school to play there. 
Yeah, I think that's what we're going to see, and it, it, it was it would be better for the schools, and I think they're starting to realize that they'd have some cost certainty, they, they'd have better retention of their talent. Uh, so you know, it strains the mind to think that you could walk into a player's living room and, and right now and say, "We'll offer you a scholarship and a stipend," and they sign on the bottom line on the dotted line, and and that goes really orderly, and you couldn't go in there with a contract and say, "Here's what we're willing to offer you," and if they say to another school, "Well, they've offered this, will you, will you offer more?" Um, you know, with players, the NCAA calls that a bidding war. With coaches, they call it business. <laughs> and with any other employee, they call it business. Um, so we have those issues now. They just haven't dealt with it on the player front, and the coaches don't like it. But I hate to report it to the coaches. When you make $10 million a year, um, you're going to have to work in a different way sometimes. And business has changed. Nobody said it was going to stay this way forever. And, uh, and I don't think you'll see anybody quit over it. Um, you know, like I haven't seen Nick Saban turn in his resignation or Tom Izzo and these others. Uh, so, you know, the business is going to keep rolling along just fine. It's just the players get to participate now and the coaches uh, are having a hard time wrapping their heads around it. And then in conjunction with the NIL and payment is the whole transfer portal. And it was surprising to a lot of people that players weren't allowed to transfer. I mean, if I, I mean, you might know me that I went to Duke law school my first year, I went to Penn my second and Duke my third. So I didn't really have any restrictions for my transferring per se, but I guess for, for college players for years and years, they weren't allowed to do what I did where I couldn't actually go to, you know, they couldn't play when they transferred, but now that's been thrown out the window also and now coaches are even i think more upset about that than they are the nil situation yeah and it's all you know in a way a selfish thing they'll say hey it's better for the players to stay in one place fight through adversity blah 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 which which is very self-serving i'm not saying some of them don't believe it uh but it kind of goes to the george costanza thing it's not a lie if you believe it Uh, (laughs) you know what what people don't what, what most people don't understand is that the transfer restriction they used to call it a year in residence, where you, if you transfer from one institution to another, you had to sit out a year of competition. Um, that only applied to five sports, football, men's and women's basketball, baseball, and hockey. Every other sport, you could transfer and be eligible right away. So the idea was based upon some principle uh, of, of betterment of the athlete or uh, the athlete needed time to adjust to the new school. It makes no sense when you've got freshman eligibility. A high school player can come in. They don't need time to adjust. It's only the player transferring. It was a, it was a deterrent, and it was a restriction. It was a penalty. Uh, and the NCAA tried desperately to be able to link the uh, sitting out a year to academic betterment, and they couldn't find a link. Um, there, there was no difference in, in uh, graduation rates for transfers as for uh, non-transfers. So they couldn't link it to anything, and they realized they were getting killed in court over it uh, because it, it worked essentially as a non-compete provision in an employment contract. But that's another thing where coaches are complaining because good players are saying, hey, you know, I, I want more playing time. I want more shots. I want more snaps. Um, and, and they were leaving where they never had to deal with that problem before. But guess what? you got to deal with it now. And, I, you know, I don't see a lot of people out there saying boo-hoo nobody's turned their television set off during the college football playoff because uh, Jalen Hurts was playing for Oklahoma instead of Alabama. Um, nobody cares. It's, uh, this is business, and uh, they'd better get used to it. And then one of the things people, you're just a wealth of knowledge about all these issues, but conference realignment and how, like, where we're going on the NCAAs, people, I think, don't realize that they think, who are big college basketball fans, don't realize that college football really calls the shots. These conferences that are merging, Oklahoma and Texas, uh, they moved to the SEC, not for basketball, but clearly just for football. And so you have that issue. And then from the NCAA perspective with the tournament, you have big schools, small schools, where you have the power conferences and these other smaller schools. So it's this, that's what makes it sort of difficult to understand where we're going to go with this and, like, when it all shakes down 
Like, is there going to be, is the SEC going to have just their own playoff and then they're going to choose a champion and have that champion and then play everybody else? Or what's going to happen with that? Yeah, I, I mean, that's anybody's guess. I think we're going to see college sports contract in a way where the big shots only play the big shots and they don't have to share their money with anybody. And as you know, Ira, um, you know, college sports is kind of bifurcated right now. You know, the NCAA does not control football in any way. They don't control a single dollar from football. Uh, all, all that money, the college football playoff, is separate from the NCAA. And, uh, and conference media deals are separate from the NCAA. So not one dollar from football flows through the NCAA office in Indianapolis. The only thing the NCAA really uh, has control over is the NCAA basketball tournament. And that's over a billion dollars a year uh, in money throwing through the, uh, flowing through the association office. At some point, uh, the Power Five is probably going to take that away from the NCAA, and you'll see the NCAA just determining eligibility and, and smaller issues, which I think is what they – that's the only lane they should be in. Um, I do feel like the best thing to do is for the Power Five and some others to form their own entity and uh, have like-minded institutions playing against each other. Uh, it, it, it's another thing that strains the mind is you can have 354 teams in Division One basketball compete against each other, and we, we like to think we have a level playing field, and we don't. Uh, what I'd like to see is, is cut it down to 120, 150 like it is in football, and you'd have more talent spread out over fewer units. All the best players would want to play on that level, uh, and, and you would see a much better product. Um, but what it would do is, is you wouldn't have St. Peter's anymore uh, in the NCAA tournament. But I don't think that's driving the bus. And, uh, and for all these institutions that like to say, well, this is about academics and this is about mentoring young people and all that stuff, I don't see any of them rushing to Division Two, where that's exactly what they do. They all want to play the big money game. And uh, we just have an odd system here in America where you know, we run a multi-billion dollar entertainment industry off of college campuses. Uh, nobody could have envisioned this 100 years ago. But uh, uh, 40 years ago, you could have envisioned it. And the NCAA chose to you know, bury its head in the sand and pretend like all of this wasn't happening, like we were just running the Little League World Series for the kids to have a good time. And that's not what we're doing. And uh, uh, you know, I, I don't have any problem with coaches making what they make or broadcasters making what they make or people paying what they're paying. Uh, I have a problem with limitations. Like players should not be limited when – every other student can earn or accept whatever they want in the marketplace. That, that's just flat out wrong to the point of being immoral. Yeah, there's a whole point about the whole Reggie Bush situation. I mean, do we go back on some of these players that, I mean, it is sad to see how some of these players lost their careers. I remember when Curtis Enos got uh, suspended because he, someone gave him a suit for a, 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 a award banquet or something where he got a suit for 100 bucks and they, and they, and they took it away. You'd like to see you know, Reggie Bush get his uh, Heisman back, some other things like that. Um, let me turn to something else while I have you for a few minutes. We're talking to Jay Billis. Uh, is the game itself. Uh, a lot of complaints from a lot of people are about the three-point shooting, how three-point shooting has taken over the game, and is there a solution to maybe instead of having now, if you have great three-point shooters, you watch Golden State and they're shooting at 40-50% clip, then that's a great game. But if you're watching a team, and in the, even last night the Celtics, you know, four for 30-26 at one point in the game, if you're seeing a lot of teams just miss shots, is, it, is the three-point shot itself like hurting basketball? No, no, it's improved it immeasurably. Um, I think it's a much better game now than it was, you know, 40 years ago. Uh, I think we've learned more about the, through the evolution of the game, learned how valuable that shot is. You know, just because a team in a particular game, you know, takes more threes than, than they would like or arguably should, and they miss them, doesn't mean that overall it's not, it's not great. It's kind of like, uh, uh, you know, you could say in, in the NFL, it's turned into more of a passing game than a running game. 
and the running back is no longer valued the same way it used to be. It's not the same kind of ground control game. Now it's more short passes. They don't have the vertical game as much as they used to. Um, you know, these teams are going to do what, what wins. And uh, so we could argue about baseball. Like they, they, they don't play hit and run anymore. And first and third defense, and all, it's all home runs or strikeouts. They're doing what wins. And if, if bunting won more, you'd see everybody bunt. It doesn't <laughs> win more. And the same thing's true in basketball. Like people our age, Ira, they lament the, the, the loss of the mid-range shot. Well, the mid-range shot is not as valuable as it used to be because there is a three-point shot, and you want to get to the, to the rim, which helps you get to the free-throw line, and you want to take open threes. Not contested threes, but open threes. That's proven to win. And there, there, there's a certain number that's a sweet spot that, that some teams have identified. It's not going to win you every game. But it's kind of like, you know, old-timers complaining about golf. They'll, they'll like, like a, a guy who won the 1970 U.S. Open will watch these guys play now and say they don't know how to play anymore. You know, they don't carve the ball around. They don't, they're, they're no creativity around the greens and all that stuff. They just bomb it out there, wedge it on the green, and putt. They're like, yeah, and they shoot 63. And, and you do the same thing if, if it were today's game. Um, the games change. And basketball has changed, but but it, it is more enjoyable, I think, now to watch than it ever been it has ever been. And the players are better than they have ever been. If you drop today's teams into the nineties, uh, today's teams would win. Um, the idea that 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 the, the teams of the nineties it's kind of like saying if you drop the uh, you know the Super Bowl champions of today in against the Green Bay Packers of the the late sixties or against the, uh, the, the 49ers in the eighties, today's teams would pummel them. They would pummel them. And, uh, and just like the, the teams of the eighties would have beaten the teams of the sixties and the teams of the sixties would have beaten the teams of the forties. The idea that, that, that there was uh, yesteryear was better is not true in any sport. You know, nobody ever says, well, Simone Biles, she could never have competed with Olga Corbett, and Nadia Comaneci. Like, come on, man. <laughs> Player, players today are better than they've ever been. Doesn't mean they're all better than Jordan, but generally they're better than they've ever been. <laughs> well, are there any tweaks, any rule changes that you think would improve the game? Is there something that you would think that would make it, more, as I said, more free-flowing or whatever? Is there anything major that you'd like to see? Uh, in the college game, I think the game needs to be called closer like it is in the NBA. And, uh, you know, the, the, I think sometimes the college game can devolve into more hand-to-hand combat. Uh, where there's too much physicality and, and, you know, generally I think uh, officials have um, let too much of that go. Some of the off ball contact, some of the on ball contact. Um, I, I do think we should go to quarters, but that's a commercial inventory issue. Uh, and I think we should uh, be more like the NBA in advancing the ball, uh, you know, late game, uh, things like that to make it more exciting. But th- there's nothing wrong with the game. I think it can be enhanced or improved, but we've got sort of a, provincial attitude toward toward making changes and they're so slow uh but I, I think the more we make it like the nba rules or international rules the better the college game would be for it well jay i really appreciate it. i know you're extremely busy and you have so much passion i mean i remember you know you're, you know you talk about people coaching coach k keeping his passion up i mean we've had these this conversations 25 years ago and you are just as passionate as then as you are now so it's now you're a as I said, legendary broadcaster, and you weren't a legend back then. But thank you again for coming on and talking about NCAA and everything with the college basketball. Always my pleasure, my friend. Thanks for having me, Ira. Awesome to get the insights from someone like Jay Billis here on Ira on Sports. So, Ira, there's a lot you can do. Most of it's going to require flying. There's also some driving. If you'd like to go to Tampa, what's your plans this week? 
I haven't decided. But, you know, the one thing about the interview with Jay, you could see that we sort of disagreed on some things. But when I went to law school with him, we, we had those same disagreements. Like, it was great. I've been arguing with Jay Billis for a long time. Like, on the three-point shot. <laughs> Since before he was Jay Billis. Yes, before, yeah. right, before he was Jay. This is, this is the – can you imagine, like, a two in the morning at law school, us, like, arguing over some stupid archaic thing. And I know he loved to use the Jews the word dicta. You know, that was great. You know, whatever, for legal side. So, Jay, it's, it's so fun about Jay is not only is he, like, super intelligent, but he can bring it to the – and say the common, but actually, it's so neat that he has that ability to break everything down so people could understand. He's a it. practicing lawyer in North Carolina. Yes, but, <laughs> this isn't basketball is not his life. He's, but I, I don't know. I have to decide. I, look, I want to go to the NBA Finals. I've been to 55 NBA Finals games. I don't know if I'm in at Gold State. I probably would like to go to Boston for those two games, but we'll see. But also maybe see Tampa. So there's an issue. But we'll we'll we'll, we'll have to. I, I I'm still getting over the loss. I was planning that you know they get yeah. the heat. I at least get three games here in Miami. Now I don't have that. So just like to wish everybody. Uh, uh, ha healthy uh, Memorial Day weekend. We want to honor the people that gave our lives, people that gave their lives to protect our country so we can enjoy all of these things. We can watch sports and enjoy this. I remember uh, uh, Pat Tillman um, is the one, is uh, a player, played for Arizona State and then played in the NFL and he actually gave up his NFL career to fight in Afghanistan and lost his life. And so when I, as I said, we're a sports show. We talk sports, but we also have to thank the people that gave their lives so we can actually spend time and talk sports and not be fighting ourselves. We are out of time. Thanks so much to Jay Billis. He's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on sports.